California has a reputation for being really liberal, but outside of LA and uh, here, it's not so much. And there's the statewide officials who give lip service to it, and people will say, oh yeah, we like this idea. And then you leave and you find out the committee tabled it. I think we're, the movement's pushing up against some hard stuff because it's almost like legalizing drug use by the state. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. From here, California can seem like a weird place. It features more heavily in movies and TV than pretty much any other region, aside from maybe New York or India, so there's a distorted view of what it can be like here. But media coverage can be especially misleading. Stereotypes about California being overrun with homeless encampments and open-air drug markets abound, as if these things don't exist in other states, while politicians in Arkansas and Oklahoma, for example, warn against so-called progressive policies infecting the Midwest. But how true is any of this? San Francisco in particular is associated with progressive policy, especially when it comes to drugs. From the chill vibes of Haight-Ashbury and Hippie Hill, to opening Prevention Point, a syringe access program in 1988, the Golden Gate City has long been a leader on certain drug issues, but not others. For example, San Francisco banned the sale of e-cigarettes in 2019 and more recently ousted progressive district attorney Chesa Boudin over being soft on crime or something. For people that are more familiar with San Francisco, the narratives surrounding this place can seem a little bizarre, such as those weird rumors that spread on social media about dogs becoming addicted to meth because they were eating the human shit that is apparently just flooding the streets and oh my god. Like most of America, the progressive liberalism that California is famous for is largely confined to major coastal cities. The rest of the state can be pretty conservative. Take it from me, who lives in San Bernardino County, the largest county in the U.S., that consistently leans Republican, but is still more moderate than, you know, say parts of Texas or something. Like most things, California politics are complicated, and nothing fits into neat, tidy narratives. But nonetheless, the state is seen as a leader on certain drug issues— So in today's issue, we're going to be talking about that a little bit. I'm Troy Farah, beaming to you from California's high desert, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Dr. Isaac Jackson, a community organizer who has over a decade of experience working with drug users. He has been instrumental in starting two drug user organizations, the San Francisco Drug Users Union in 2010 and the San Francisco branch of the Urban Survivors Union in 2013. As leader of the Urban Survivors Union in San Francisco, Jackson has spearheaded a crack pipe distribution program and so much more. He has a lot of interesting history to share, but first a little bit about Narcotica. Narcotica has been on the airwaves for over four years, trying to cover drugs from a perspective of compassion, science, and evidence. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all of that. So do the like and subscribe thing, please. It does actually help us out. You can visit our beautiful website, narcocast.com. To find all kinds of episodes on psychedelics, opioids, stimulants, you can learn more about drugs like naltrexone or abortion pills or how big pharma operates with impunity. Drugs are a big, big category, and they let us talk about all kinds of other aspects of social justice, from housing to reproductive rights. We have a lot more to cover, and no intention of stopping this show anytime soon, but your help is what keeps us going. If you want to join about 70 people who make Narcotica possible, just go to patreon.com narcotica. 
We also have a PayPal, if that's easiest. Just send your donation to narcoticapod at gmail.com. Patrons can request free stickers, which are personally mailed to you. You can also pick up merch at narcocast.myshopify.com or just go to narcocast.com and click on shop in the corner. We've got t-shirts and mugs designed by the amazing artist Ryan Gray. More stuff should be added soon. We've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff lately, so keep an eye out for that. At Narcotica, we have bills to pay just like everyone else. Everything is getting more expensive. It's very humbling that folks care enough about this little podcast that just wants to see some goddamn common fucking sense applied to drug policy. We're also excited to announce that Narcotica is giving back. We are a messaging service, but we want to support the folks doing actual on-the-ground work. So 10% of our monthly income will go to support the Urban Survivors Union, a grassroots coalition dedicated to ensuring respect, dignity, and social justice for our community. We love the work that USU is doing, and we are happy to sponsor them. You can learn more at drugusersvoice.org. Thanks for listening. That's all the technical stuff. Now on to the show. I'm Troy Farah, beaming to you from California's high desert, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Dr. Isaac Jackson, a community organizer who has a decade of experience working with drug users. He has been instrumental in starting two drug user organizations, the San Francisco Drug Users Union in 2010 and the San Francisco branch of the Urban Survivors Union in 2013. Jackson, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. I love my colleague. Thanks. Um, and I appreciate your, uh, you know, your patience and everything making this happen because uh, it's been a journey. We know we've been trying to get this started in a while. So to start, I, I kind of want to go way back. Um, in the 1980s, you were a founding member of Blackheart, a journal of writing and graphics by black gay men in New York City. I know that's not really about drugs, uh, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about your time then and, and you know how that was a form of community organizing that informed your approach to community organizing efforts for drug users? Well, back in the 1980s, uh, a bunch of us uh, black gay men in New York City com- were complaining about the fact that in the major gay publications like The Advocate or um, Christopher Street, there weren't very many writers being published. And people kept saying, oh, James Baldwin, James Baldwin, James Baldwin, which is, he's a fantastic writer. He's a great person. Uh, I love him to death, but um, he can't represent everybody. And he's, he was from a different generation. We were inspired by him. Also, we were also inspired by the black feminist movement. Um, the, this bridge called my back and books like that. Um, gave us inspiration that there was an audience for um, black intellectuals or black community organizers working in, in the area of um, sexual politics or gay politics. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of Kitchen Table Press. They were around in the early 80s. Um, they were run by black, the first press run by black women publishing progressive stuff. And uh, Barbara Smith was a friend of mine, also Hetty Gossett. And they kept saying, hey, why don't you guys do something? So a combination of us wanting to do things and then get encouragement from the black community, black feminists, um, that got us off our butts and we started thinking about doing, doing this journal. And also, part of it was I was working in the gay community already. I worked at a gay bookstore. Um, there's two big... Two, there were two gay bookstores in Manhattan, New York City. I worked at both of them <laughs> various times. So I was pretty in, in, kind of in the middle of things. So I, I had a knowledge of what was kind of out there and what the audience might be for books, because bookstore helps. So um, we called for a meeting. We put flyers up in the bookstore and around different gay 
uh, places and the meeting was at my house the first time and we had about 12 people show up and one or two of them I knew before but uh, all of us were new to each other and it was a great, great process. Funny thing about it is I just wanted to be the editor. I didn't want to write. I didn't feel like my poetry was any good. So I said, you guys, are the, you guys are the writers. But they insisted that I give them something. And so I did, you know. And so that's the first issue. I had one poem. And then we did another issue. Um, I had some more poems in there. So that's kind of how I got into it and how it worked. Um, the readings were really great. I, mean, I love print and your print guy and everything. Also media guy, too. Um, but I love that we had some great performances. So for anyone who wants to do this in, with poetry or literature, um, just do it. Have confidence in your writing. I just said I didn't, but that group pulled me up so that I, I could do that. And people from Gay Men's Press in London came and wanted to publish some of our work and publish some of my stuff. So um, I've always been a writer. Since I was a kid, I was a writer. I wrote stories. <laughs> Yeah, my teacher said, oh, you didn't write that. It's, you know, it's too good. And my mom had to go to school and say, he, he wrote that. I saw him sit down and write that story the other night. So anyway, I guess I'm a natural writer. Um, that helps, but you don't have to be to do this work. And there's lots of things you can do besides writing for publication. You know, uh, the first issue we printed almost by hand. We printed it. Uh, we had to put, assemble it. There was a, a, a book uh, collective that a lot of people... If you have any money to come in and do it yourself. We printed it on like, Xerox. That it's a really good way to learn how to do publishing or whatever media you're working in because you don't know anything, so everything is a learning experience, but you're excited because you're doing something you don't want to do. There are some pitfalls with art because I think art in the West tends to be geared toward individuals, and people look for stars, uh, people a few names they can hang on to, and that, that kind of broke us up because some people were being selected for publications and people weren't. So I think we go over again. I would try and get every, make some, insist with publishers, you can't just publish a few people. Um, we will take turns. We'll you know, help other people make their writing better if they need to be. But it, it kind of split the group up between, you know, people who are getting known and other people. And, and how did that like sort of translate into forming these drug user unions? Well, one reason why I kind of dropped out of the Black A organizing thing was AIDS crisis, you know, it really hit, we're talking about 1981, right, when we started. AIDS crisis was becoming a major, major force in all of our lives, not just gay men, but, you know, I don't know how old you are, but during the early 80s, it, it dominated everything. Especially since there was no, people didn't even know what caused it. Um, so that was really a burnout situation for me. And, and when people started dying in, in our own collective, I was horrified. And so I left. I feel ashamed that I, I, I couldn't take it anymore. But, you know, I remember one day I was going to see my good friend who was dying in his uh, apartment with his lover. I sat in the corner for hours. I couldn't bring myself to go. I just couldn't do it. So, um, excuse me. <laughs> no, that's totally okay. Like, I'm 32, so... Um... I really did miss that era, and it's sometimes hard for me to imagine how uh, devastating and how scary that whole period was. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of glossed over a lot in uh, in our society and history. Like that was a pandemic that killed a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, but because it 
for a while it wasn't seen as you know uh, a problem with white people or straight people so much it is you know people everybody can get hiv but in the early stages like it was totally ignored and right this like the despair that people must have felt just seeing so many people dying and not i mean we didn't have prep back then we didn't even have a test for it yeah yeah so i mean it's it's very hard for me to put my my mind into that situation and i i can't imagine how hard it must have been it was really really hard it was terrible and i have um some survivor's guilt around that you know, like, why me? Why am I still alive? So many times that people are dead. It just really, it really sucks. Um, but finally we got the test and we were able to develop some safer sex practices in the community. So we had to do it on our own. And I think, I hate to say this, but the gay community before HIV was kind of fragmenting. People felt they had the freedom in big cities to do what they wanted. And it was less political, more like um, going to discos and partying and everything like that, which is fun. But yeah, it's not the only thing a movement should be doing, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where you, it just hits you out of nowhere. No one had any idea it was coming. I, during that period, uh, um, as an aside, I got a small grant from New York State to um, do writing, and I used part of that grant to visit Europe. Because the Gay Men's Press, which published my work, was in England. I wanted to go there and read my work there. And when I got there, AIDS had hit New York really badly. But they said, we're not going to get it here. We know about it, and we're going to make sure we're not going to get it. I said, it's too late. It's already here. You just don't know it yet. This disease takes its time. One thing I guess I got out of the whole experience is that um, when you organize people who are oppressed, it's serious stuff. You know, it's not something for um, do for a semester or, you know, you're going to get really down deep. You have to really um, commit yourself. The more oppressed the group is, the more you have to be committed. I'm not saying that you have to be part of the group that's actually, you can be a, a white person or um, a straight person working with the black gay movement. That's fine. You know, but I think at the core of it, um, when you start out, you have to have people who are, there's life or death. So in drug use and movement, um, it's very similar how it kind of got started. I'm not quite as dramatic as the um, AIDS crisis, but um, it was it was a lot of despair when I started working in this area because all the uh, the biggest problem was stigmatization. You know, how dare you junkies stand up and say, I, I, I'm a human being, I need to be heard. How dare you? you you're, you're recently illegal. You should be locked up. And, you know, I have to, I'm sorry, I keep crying. Um, how many genocides do I have to live through? Because, you know, um, I think the genocide, not lightly, I mean, it, but you know what I'm saying, how many holocausts, probably a better word, do I have to live through? Because uh, you see a group that's being decimated, and same thing with drug users, um, in the last few years with the fentanyl thing, it's gotten really crazy. Um, it reminds me so much of that era. Um, but the, you know, there were good things that happened. I mean, we were successful um, in terms of what people got published in, in that movement, but then they all died. I escaped. I just, to be honest, I just couldn't take it anymore, and I went to grad school in a totally different subject area than I was working in the city. I went to computer uh, technology and... Um, 
Yeah, you, you got your PhD. Yeah, I um, started teaching the public school, and I took a class at uh, this grad school called Banksbury College that had a totally progressive attitude to education that I never really heard before. You know, like, it was a progressive fresh air, so I started going to grad school there, got a master's degree, um, and I was really excited about what was going on because computers were, like, kind of brand new <laughs> uh, for home use, and I stumbled into it because my undergrad degree was in uh, art and video art, and one of the problems the artists had during that period, this is pre-digital, right? Everything's on tape, you know? Um, when you go show your video at a, at a gallery, every TV set is tuned differently. So you want to have, a, like, five minutes of color bars before you show your tape so you can tune the TV to be, you know, the right color. I'm talking about the 18th century or something. <laughs> uh, because uh, I'm 67 years old, so um, I've, I've been around for a while. Um, can you imagine having to like, tune the TV to a tape that isn't someone already, you know, digitally perfect? But that's what we had to do. Anyway, so uh, I got a Tumblr 64 just as a, you know, as a toy. Tumblr 64, really cheap. And I, I discovered there's top bars. I said, oh, cool, I digital column bars. I can t- That's how I stumbled into um, computers, because of video art. And uh, so anyway, um, when I got to be a teacher, I went to uh, teach computers and young kids. But I found out that it's very bureaucratic, and you have to have seniority to do that. And I said, I'm, I'm going to graduate school in computer education. That's okay. Another five, six years, and you, know, you might get a computer class. The class that they have that in that school was teaching people, kids from like a, a workbook and, and pre-programmed software that they just, you know, play by the numbers. No knowledge of what this period was all about. So that's why I went to MIT because um, they understood that uh, that was not a really great way to learn anything. So how did it get to the whole drug thing? Uh, believe it or not, I mean, MIT is kind of a really druggy school. <laughs> <laughs> really? When I was there, there was a lot of on campus. And I had done acid when I was younger in high school, but I stopped using hard drugs or any, you know, for a long time. And so I um, started tripping there. Um, and it was, it, 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 was, it was good. It was good because I was in an environment where there's only a few days a week I had to be anywhere in a particular time for class or seminar had a lot of free time. So I was able to explore that and uh, not interfere with my work too much. Um, the one student said to me one day, said, yeah, you're tripping, aren't you? I said, what do you mean? You're different. Something's right. It's different than you were last year. Said, oh, okay, it's probably, you're probably right. It's LSB, I guess. Uh, and I don't know how it changes you, but um, I do know how it changes you, but how it looks to, if you're in an environment no one's tripping, and you suddenly you are tripping. I guess it, something must stand out. I don't know what it was, but um, so nothing happened um, terrible. But you didn't get too fat or anything. So that so I started using drugs there, and then I uh, had an internship in California, uh, two summers in a row. And uh, when you come to San Francisco from the East Coast, and uh, it's a whole new ball game when it comes to drugs, you know. <laughs> uh, I was able to speak for the first time 
I did meth for the first time when I came to California. And uh, that was eye-opening. So I feel like I had a second adolescence in a way that, you know, I, when I went to grad school, I experimented with things I wouldn't do if I wouldn't have the freedom to. And MIT is a really great school because um, if I said to someone, hey, you know, there's this program, there's a research project in California, I want to go visit. I'll say, okay, when do you want to go? We'll book your ticket, you know, to go there. So that was a lot of privilege. So when, when I'm, if I'm seen as one of the early pioneers or people into this movement, I have to admit, a lot of it came from privilege. Um, have the freedom to do these things, um, you know. Um, so that's a contradiction. Yeah, yeah. Big one, because I wasn't coming from, like, the ghetto or anything like that. Almost like um, a Tim Leary kind of thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your first experience on meth. Um, you said that was eye-opening or something like that. I mean, yes. I, I kind of, you know, wrestled with this idea is like, can methamphetamine be psychedelic? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like, I mean, it is sort of in the same category as the phenethylamines with MDMA and, and some of these drugs that are called intactogens, which are sort of on the periphery of like, I mean, I could be getting some of this wrong, um, but it's sort of like, I I would say methamphetamine is at least a little bit adjacent to psychedelics, uh, which is sort of weird. Back in the day, you know, um, if you read electroculoid acid test, um, speed and DMT and uh, LSD, of course, they were all being used by the Merry Pranksters and Ginsburg and different people, you know, so that that fueled the, the movement of the uh, beginning of the hippie movement. Um, drugs were first time they widely widely accepted, you know. Um, that was back in the sixties. I remember that I, I was a kid. I remember reading about LSD in Life magazine. Uh, apparently, the editor, as an aside, the editor of Life magazine was a big acid head. And so there are lots of, every year there's some article kind of praising it, you know. And then um, when the Beatles came out and said they were using acid, and they had Arsene and Jimi Hendrix and um, people like that all doing psychedelic, as I was reading that as a 12-year-old kid, I said, to the back of my mind, I said, when I get to be older, I want to try that. <laughs> you know, it sounds interesting. It makes you more creative, supposedly. So it was a totally different climate than here, than now, because it was a brand new thing. Um, and also, my parents didn't suspect kids were using drugs. They said, how can they get drugs? They're just kids. You know, high school kids, right? Um, well, because we have older brothers and sisters. So um, so I experimented with drugs actually in high school. I didn't talk about that too much, but I did. I was a big acid head, and um, that was a good experience for me. Can I, can I ask a question? Like, when was the last time uh, you did acid? Because I know you're 67, so... Right. Um, I did do psychedelics uh, during that period. I think I, I managed to get a couple of them. First started coming to California, I was able to get some blotter. And so probably that's when I got back into it again. Um, but again, I was doing drugs at MIT, so um, mostly acid. Um, so it was it was really a different world because um, it was so like under the radar that no one really noticed it happening. The rave scene in London, and, um, you know, remember that? Right. Um, people doing ecstasy. That was the first time there was a public announcement that people doing hallucinogens, 
other drugs in, in public at raves, right? And uh, I, I remember going to a rave uh, here in the city. Um, so I died out when I got here in, in 92, but I did go to a few raves. Um, so, yeah, I, I did ask it during that period. In fact, I have a funny uh, uh, story about that. I had tickets to go see the Grateful Dead, right? They sent me of acid rock, right? And I was a deadhead in high school. So I had gone in a while, and uh, I, I had tickets for a show by myself, and I was uh, smoking crack before I went to the show. And then I took some acid. And within about a half hour or so, I was laughing hysterically, and I picked up these crack rocks, and, and I said, this is so weird. These little rocks have so much effect over me. And they're just tiny little things, you know? <laughs> um, so that was kind of epiphany about um, you know, drugs in general. I think having a wide range of drug experiences helps you to put them in perspective. You know, I'm not advocating anyone to try all the drugs they can. But um, again, this is I'm talking about the early 90s. And um, there wasn't uh, this hysteria that we have now. Even if, even the right wing didn't pick up on what was happening underground. You know, the race scene was happening. People openly doing drugs and no one did anything about it. But the racing also was um, a very uh, grassroots, up from the, you know, from the roots kind of movement. So I think people um, had a lot of freedom because no one cared. No one was paying attention to what we were doing. It was just a small little group of people. Um, so it was a fun time. Yeah. The race was kind of like uh, the 60s, but kind of a different format. You know I mean, it was um, more underground. There was no film, no film or rave. People just um, got these big speakers and go to the park and do ecstasy and dance all night, you know? Um, so there's a lot of freedom there. Yeah. So how do you feel about San Francisco today? Because I, I, I hear this all the time. There's this conception that San Francisco streets are just overflowing with human shit and people injecting drugs in the open, um, which... I mean, I think that exists in some parts of the city. When I visited a couple of years ago, I mostly remember community gardens. Um, but, you know, I did see some of that. Some, But I think that's just normal and it didn't, like, offend me. Um, but it's still used as a talking point in a lot of conservative media and even a lot of, like, you know, uh, liberal media as well. Like, that San Francisco is a failed city and that, you know, it just rampant crime and disaster and just disgusting. And I, I just don't really get that. I feel like that's just a false narrative, but you, you tell me like, how have things changed? What is it like there today? Well, I think the, the, the right wing has picked up on, on drugs um, as a, a topic. And San Francisco is the model case because people are very liberal here about that. Um, you know, job announcements reg regularly saying, you know, um, uh, lived experience with drugs, welcome. You know, we'd be working with social services, right? Uh, I don't know how many cities do that now, but, you, you know, you apply for a uh, job here and uh, you don't have to worry about them researching your past and find out you've been arrested or something. Um, so, in a way, the city is, um, how can I say it, um, it's become almost institutionalized. Um, and I, uh, and I'm afraid that some of the work I did in Drug Users Union helped move the city toward that, um, but with weird consequences. How can I say it? It's sort of like um, 
maybe as my friend says that uh, we had no resistance to us doing the union, right? And it's hard to bring people there who were like strung out. I think it's in, it's in the air. I mean, I think it started in the sixties. You know, Hey Ashbury, right? And Hey Ashbury is now has this famous clinic. They start out treating drug users at concerts. And now they're a major player in the medical scene here. So it's kind of like not um, the, the, the culture that looks down on people from professional class that, that are anti-drugs. Everyone kind of accepts it because it's some status quo, which is not a weird position to be in because most of the country is not like that. Um, and, yeah, there's pockets of backlash. You know, there are people who really, um, I feel sorry for them because um, they're in a losing battle. The city... Good example, Mayor Breed put you know her task force, two task forces, because of the work I've done. One one was on methamphetamine, another one was on safer injection facilities. Yeah, and you were on both of those task forces, right? Yeah, and one about methamphetamine. I suggested at one of the meetings that we have a, a resource center, a, a crisis center for people that it's open all night, and uh, by three in the morning they'd be really strung out, and there's no place to go. So the emergency room, and that's a horror show. Excuse me. Now, see, the hospitals are, as an aside, hospitals are a little bit different because people come from all over the country. You know, when you get assigned to medical um, school, I guess you, you, you don't have a lot of choice or something like that. And you go where, you, where the openings are. So we have people in the emergency room from all over the country that are not used to San Francisco. So one of the things that we had to do in Drug Users Union um, was confront that because we asked new members, what's the biggest issue? You see the hospital, and everyone said the hospital is terrible. You said what the city was like culturally, right? Uh, I had bad experiences there, terrible experiences there, where one time I was um, hallucinating from too much speed, and they tied me down to a gurney. And this guy comes up with a catheter and said, I'm going to you know, get the urine sample. I'm going to give him a urine sample. I'm going to get that one way or the other. I started screaming, rape, rape, rape. You know? And uh, he stopped. But, you know, but so there's a big culture, cultural mismatch between what, what normal people, normal people, most people accept about drug use and hospitals. They're just awful. Yeah. But I know yeah. that's the wrong way to ask, answer your question about the cultural, um, this is like now, but it's kind of leading into that because that was the first time I had really encountered an institution that was so uh, anti drugs. But it turns out that, it, that doctors get two hours of training in illicit drug use the whole career. Of, you know I mean? In other words, medical school is what, seven years, six years with internships? They get two hours to learn about illicit drug use. Right. So they don't know anything about it. And, and, and they said to me, we're tired of all these drug users coming in. They are talking about emergency rooms. And I said to them, well, you know, um, you don't say that about people with heart attacks. Um, you're not saying that you just stop eating red meat or, you know, change the exercise more. You just treat them. And, and you don't pretend to have any moral judgment on them. But with my group, drug users, you have an incredible judgment against them. And so we spent a, a good year working with General Hospital, and we managed, we managed to get a meeting with the staff. It was really hard because it's scheduling. But we managed to get a meeting with the psych, psych emergency staff. It was a great meeting. People did, you'd be surprised how ignorant people were in the medical profession about drugs. So, and that's, a, that's something that our movement should really look into. I mean, I know Louise in, in North Carolina has, has had problems with hospitals. And I, I personally didn't have a hosp- 
too many problems with them, but it still remains a, a, a real barrier for people. Because people say to me, I'd rather be sick than go to the hospital. Right, right. Yeah, that is such a fucked up aspect of our society uh, is that it seems like in a lot of medical professions, it's even, it's, it's totally allowed, it's encouraged even to be stigmatizing towards people who use drugs. Uh, you, you know, they may say that the hospital is being clogged with people using drugs, um, but they don't say that about people with alcohol, right? You know, like drinking causes all kinds of issues that people end up in the hospital, especially around uh, certain holidays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, but the, what the culture is like now, I say there is an, an establishment of medical professionals and social workers who are supporting harm reduction in theory. No more, no more than theory. I, mean, it, it, I wouldn't want to go to an emergency room in another state. We have to. Um, uh, or a doctor, because they immediately say, oh, you must stop using drugs. So, you know, you'll find people like that occasionally. Like, for instance, I have um, arthritis in both knees, and the doctor I have uh, refuses to schedule an operation to um, replace them because I, he knows I'm a drug user. And I said to him, like, why is that? Because I can get clean. He wanted me to get clean for a year before I do surgery. And I said, that's really harsh because I know drugs don't stay in your system for a year. And he said, well, it's more about post-surgery. And people, they find drug users don't stick to the regimen they need to like, get your knees back together. And so they feel it's a waste of time when someone can prove that they're clean for a year. I think it's really horrible. Um, and uh, not like I couldn't do it, but I feel like it's a violation of my um, free speech rights and um, the right to be, you know, individual, because I, I will, I would be clean for the necessary time to have the operation, um, but a year is overkill, and uh, and they don't see drug use as partly. We see as a question of will, like you, you just need to stop, just just say no, right? But it's a question of will, but also if someone's been a long time user, their by the whole bio um, thing has been altered. Particularly, we learn more and more about how the brain works, the dopamine, things like that. And so, um, you know, it's uh, your brain's been rewired, I think. Now, you, you know probably more about this than me. This is relatively new literature. My understanding of it is that we're, we're finding out that um, some of the dopamine system gives, gives pleasure. It gets kind of um, taken over by drugs. And so some of the things that you... We get pleasure from like playing baseball or basketball, or whatever. You can get that from a, a needle or a, or a joint or a pill or something. And your brain gets used to that. So going clean, depending on how long you've been using, can be um, not an easy thing to do. Now, what, what do you think about that theory? I mean, I don't know how much truth there is to it, to be honest. Like, I hear that a lot. Like, um, I was warned a long time ago that like, don't ever do math or don't ever do MDMA and have sex because then you'll never want to have sex sober, which is total bullshit because I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> and I found that out. You know, yeah. It's, it's like, okay, it's sort why, of, why, like wouldn't, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. Like I, I feel like it's sort of a myth that you can't enjoy life well. if you do drugs, even, even if you have a substance use disorder or, problematic drug use like you can still find pleasure right. yeah um but 
I mean, there's this theory, I don't like to use this terminology about like drugs hijacking the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I mean, that's, that's really just getting into the whole equation of tolerance of like, you know, your brain like wants equilibrium. You keep introducing chemicals to it. It's going to adjust itself to sort of kind of balance itself out. I mean, you sort of see that with SSRIs, you know, antidepressants. Um, yeah, I was on it for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't think that's the same thing as having the brain hijacked, but yeah, your brain chemistry can change because of drugs. The thing is, is like, I think it's, um, there's more plasticity to the brain than people like to talk about. Like the brain, uh, people say like, Oh, it stops developing at a certain age. And it's like, it it can change your whole life. And if you, if you create brain damage because of drug use, I, I definitely believe that you can, um, fix that brain damage. Right. Uh, you know, there are drugs that they generate neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, like ketamine is a good example. Psilocybin is a good example. Um, meth can actually be neuroprotective in small doses um, when it's, you know, pharmaceutical grade. Right. Um, they will give people that have traumatic brain injury stuff like Adderall or Ritalin and sometimes even meth. It's like... Yeah, I... Because I'm she's an out person, I can't find a doctor that would ever give me Adderall or any drug like that. Um, I, get, I, I had Ritalin once from an underground source. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought, oh, I love this drug. But, you, you know, who's going to give me a prescription for that in my medical history? Um, so it's, in a way, I was looking at this brain thing as a way to get more compassion for drug users when you say you must get clean for a year, um, but a struggle that it's going to be for some people because, but you're right. I mean, it's not, it's a new kind of idea and it may not hold water. And I don't want to say people are damaged forever. It's not, I don't see things, I don't see it as being damaged. I think that we have different paths in life we, we can take. And uh, I know in the gay community of speed is a big thing. And, and there are lots of people that probably ever have sex without it. Um, um, but what's wrong with that? I mean, having a good time. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. We did an episode on chem sex, and uh, the person we interviewed, uh, David, talked a lot about um, inhibition, you know? Right. Like, when you're gay and you're experiencing all this stigma every everywhere you go, um, sometimes a drug that can help, like, break down those barriers of self-doubt and shame, um, that's beneficial. And like, right. I don't want to deny anybody that like the ability to feel comfortable in their own skin. Right. And also we have to be careful that we don't make the normative, um, gay or straight couple as the paradigm of all things good by relationships. Being, um, single means that I have a lot more time to meet new people all the time. And some people hang around and become friends. Others don't. But I don't feel my life has been empty because I don't have one lover for a long time. Um, only time really bothers me is around Christmas time because <laughs> everyone disappears to their family at that time. But um, so, like between Thanksgiving and New Year's, this you know, <laughs> you don't have a, a, a relationship, it's kind of lonely. But um, other than that, uh, I, I, I don't regret that I have lots of I have had, had lots of lovers. I've got a lot of things from them, and. Um, you know, it's a different life experience, but it's, it's not, it's not inferior to normative 
couple you know, for life. And plus, most couples for life aren't couples for life. Right, right. <laughs> right, that's a paradigm that people want to project, but either they're, they're doing stuff on the side or they have an agreement. They can do stuff on the side. So the heterosexual by gay people marriage can be problematic in its own way. The gay marriage thing really irked me because it uh, that movement for gay marriage, and, you know, it kind of worked. It worked. But, but there's so many other issues that we have been confronting with all that energy on gay marriage. And who's going to benefit from it? People that have money. Yeah. yeah. Um, it saves them a lot of money, tax dollars and things like that. But for uh, the rest of us, I felt that gay marriage is kind of a ripoff. Yeah. And in fact, it happened so fast, too. That it wasn't really a good organizing tool. Um, Supreme Court just went and said, "Okay, there's no struggle around it." But um, it happened so fast, and, and the reason why I think it happened really fast is because it was one of the few mo- the few movements since uh, the War in Vietnam, anti-war movement. There were a lot of um, white men in it, and so uh, white men I mean, use their privileges. No, no offense to you know, present company, but um, the, their privilege helped them get get there so fast. It was amazing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. They, it was like a 10-year struggle, and then it was over. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, you know, I, during that period, I was in a long-term relationship for me, like, four years. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just like uh, so many things. Actually, I took a class. The class could be called How to Become a, a, a Straight Model Couple. It was mainly about adopting kids, right? But um, circusy and adoption and different ways to become a family. And I, I came back to the class, talked to my boyfriend about it, saying, I don't know if I want to do this. I mean, they told me it's already too late for us to to um, have any life. If we have a kid now, we're both in the mid-30s. We have to put all this money aside for college. And we should be doing this when we were in our 20s. Now we're mid-30s. We won't have any leftover money everything's done with college education and uh, all this something big, big trap. I just said, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable not having kids. It was going to be kind of struggle um, coming to really late. And plus, um, he was he was Canadian and I was American. So moving to Canada was really problematic. Because I can't, my gay marriage accepted both sides of the border. So it probably was a lot easier than it was back in the 80s to um, get married and, and feel like you won't be fighting a battle uphill. Um, I, you know, uh, so but like marriage, I said, look, the idea was I'm going to use my sperm with a surrogate um, because we want to have an interracial family. And uh, I said, but look, you have no rights. If I decide I want to leave Canada and take the kid with, kid with, with me, you have absolutely no rights. There was no recognition of our, our relationship officially, right? So these are things that I know it's kind of off the subject of drugs and stuff, but... Um, they're kind of connected in a way. I mean, because gay people and, and drug users stigmatized to death. And a lot of self-hatred in that. Um, people getting clean. I was just sorry about clean. I went through a period where I joined NA. And I was clean for two years, two and a half years. And a lot of things came with it. You know, I got a really good paying job. Um, but we had a Christmas party and a lot of alcohol was going around. And I said, I can't drink. And, and they said, why not, Isaac? Come on, just drink a little bit. It's not going to kill you, you know? Just one drink, it's not going to kill you. <laughs> so I was in the closet that, that was in recovery, and they kept insisting, I kept saying no. And finally, we were sitting down to eat dinner, and so I could see the lights going off in their head. 
why I couldn't drink. They said, is it religious? I said, no. Is it health reasons? No. I just wanted to drink, I said. They, they realized, oh, he must be in, in the program. He must be in recovery. And it, it, I was outed by them. And it was a contract job to become full-time, and I didn't get the full-time job. So, you know, this notion of, like, uh, being clean is the best way to go um, doesn't always work because people forget that drugs all over society. And people who are not identified as drug users, in the holidays, they can go crazy, right? The window, they can get really drunk and fall down drunk and, you know, New Year's Eve and people, you know, that's acceptable. But if you're in a program, you stand out like a sore thumb, <laughs> you know? So, anyway. Right. Yeah. I, I hate that. It's like, you know, people in, in, in NA or AA, you know, like people should recognize that they're trying to do something about their their health or drug use, whatever. And like, because they have admitted that they need help, that that's, that's becomes a, a, a something to use against them. It's fucked up. Right. Yeah. Like what's wrong with him? Um, plus, it's an aside. It was a very conservative company. Um, that never hired me without me being clean. So, you know, me and the phone thought, I mean, you know, well, I used to be a phone hacker when I was a kid. So they didn't know that. But there was such a fucked up culture. I mean, they say things like, oh, we hate Google. Because Google's making millions on our network we built. <laughs> I said, nothing's stopping you from starting a Google. It's not like they're ripping you off. It's just you didn't think of it, you know? And the whole mentality about phone companies are really conservative crazy place anyway um so um i I sort of want to get back to this question you know do you agree with this assessment that san francisco is basically a cesspool of lawlessness and liberal bullshit i mean i I think that um people are somewhat exhausted of of the homeless people who who are very open about drug use um i um when a few years ago i was going to the bus late night and one guy was teaching another guy how to shoot up right there on Mission and Market Street, and Mission and Van uh, the corner where cops go by all the time and buses go by all the time. So I can see if you don't know anything about the drug culture and you look out your window and you see someone shooting up right there in one of the biggest thoroughfares in the city, you might think that all hell's breaking loose. But I thought that was really good that this guy was helping him to do it, right? Um, but the difference between San Francisco and other places is that they would have gone to a corner to do it, but here we just do it right in, in, in the middle of no, in the middle of everywhere, right? So that that irks people. That the fact that we have some uh, um, not pride, but I think it's like uh, ten thousand drug users in, in San Francisco, estimated, um, and probably um, as many college students as there are drug users in the city. So with that, some numbers people know you, they can't arrest us all, right? So people flock here for that, um, you know. Uh, so it's it's a problem that um, deny the holder. Um, when I see someone trying to shoot up, back in the day when I was a little bit more mobile, um, I would say, "Hey, do you need some points? Do you need, you know?" I sit down with them, see they've been OD, you know. And I, I felt no fear of being arrested. He felt no fear of being arrested, and this was like not far from downtown. So I think it's um, safety in numbers that irks people. But uh, it's kind of a weird uh, feedback loop because people hear that, they, they come here um, seeking that freedom, right? But then the people who have been here a long time feel it's not fair that we get all the drug users come here because we're liberal. And so there is somewhat of a backlash. And um, 
it's, a, it's, it's something that has to be addressed. Now, the speed center that I talked about that the city adopted from my ideas, that's a step for a solution for that, right? And and we don't get a safe injection site facility. I don't know. I mean, that's a, to me, that's one of the big solutions for this problem. Um, it's not a problem for, for me or the users, but for their own public, right? And the mayor had announced he was going to open up one. She backed down. So I feel people can't complain about that when they allow the people who have thought about it a long time to, to go forward with this plan. I don't get it why she, I don't know. Some people say she's going to run for higher office someday. I don't know. But uh, she had, um, she ran for mayor. She said she was going to do it. A proper platform. I voted for her. Uh, two terms later, we still don't set, no self injection site. So I think it's a personality issue. Uh, maybe a new mayor would be more pragmatic. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, first of all, for, you know, there's all this news about Governor Newsom vetoing the safe injection bill, which was just stupid, but he's trying to run for president apparently. So he, that idea is not popular enough to get him votes. So he, he vetoed it in spite of the science, in spite of all this support. And he made a bullshit excuse. It's like, well, the people that are organizing the supervised consumption, they didn't make enough of a plan to show how this would work and all this. It's bullshit. Like they had worked so hard to make this a reality. And the last thing I heard was that uh, San Francisco was going to go ahead and open up a supervised consumption site anyway. Uh, is that not the case anymore? I have not heard that, but um, I'll believe it when it opens up. I've been burnt so many times with people saying we're going to do it, yeah, and yeah. they don't do it. Uh, they they blamed Governor Brown the last time to try to do it. He vetoed a bill just like Newsom did. Um, people need to have guts and just do it and say arrest us. You know, I've, I've been in meetings where I've said, look, if you guys are afraid to risk your jobs. Urban Survivors Union and other activists will come and we'll, we'll work. We'll do the things that you're afraid of doing. We want to see this open. Silence in the room. When I, when I said it several times in meetings, I said, look, because they, they talk about the legality of it and they want to be sure they get arrested who works there and blah, 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 blah. And I said, yeah, there, there are enough people in the city who believe in this. We will work, not for free, but we will work, you know, we'll volunteer to be sure if anyone gets arrested, it'll be us, not you guys. We've already been arrested, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, but they don't like that for some reason. Uh, I think they're afraid of people power, you know. Um, now, um, there are safe injection facilities in the city, but, you know, I can't say exactly where they are, but there are functioning rooms that people do that, and you know, so. Yeah, I've definitely heard of those. Um, and uh, I think it's great, you know, like people... I think that's true about so much activism. Like if at, at the beginning of pretty much every major social movement, there's had to be people that had to stand up and get arrested. You know, there are the Stonewall riots and the civil rights movement and all kinds of stuff. Like, and now we're, we're trying to move into, I hope we're trying to move into a future where drug users have rights that you don't suddenly become a lesser citizen because of which chemicals you decide to use. I mean, but that's probably why supervised consumption is still so unpopular. It's fine to campaign on that, but you don't have to fulfill that promise because the people that are uh, largely in support of that, you know, there's a lot of felons and they don't have the right to vote. They're not going to help you get elected. So it doesn't even matter if you fulfill that promise. I mean, maybe that's 
some of the calculus. I don't know for sure, but it's so cynical. Yeah, I mean, the first time around we couldn't get a marijuana bill passed. Voters rejected it. So California has a reputation for being really liberal, but um, outside of L.A. and uh, here, it's not so much. And there's assemblymen and uh, other statewide officials who give lip service to it. I've gone out um, to Sacramento and try it, you know. And people will say, oh, yeah, we like this idea. And then you leave and you find out the committee tabled it to next year. So I don't know. It, it, we're, I think we're, the movement's pushing up against some hard stuff because uh, it's almost like legalizing drug use by the state, right? That's what people feel. I mean, it is, right? Um, and in the interest of safety. But, uh, you know, um, I would ask questions like, what about smokers? Is this this be IV people? And so the Safer Inside group said there would be a smoking uh, thing, a separate, like a mobile thing outside the facility to go and smoke. But maybe maybe the neighbors, see, I used to the right where they were going to build it, but um, I moved last year to a very different neighborhood, but it's like being in the 50s. Um, it defines itself as not being the tenderloin. So, um, you know, there won't be any facilities like that here. But there's plenty of drug users here because I read the coroner's report of overdose every month. And there's plenty of people around where I live that have OD'd alone in a room. And it's heartbreaking because you can't get to them because you don't know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the people who use drugs in the street, they're doing really righteous protests, I think, to say, hey, we're here and we're not going to do anything. And we're not going to go anywhere. Just, we, we know what we're doing. So, uh, yeah, you know, I just want to give a, a plug for some of the things we're going to do. USU, maybe other people have um, talked about it, but we, we're planning on rolling out a fentanyl pipe for people to to um, use. Um, it's not foolproof; people have OD'd with the pipe, but there's some mod- there's some moderation there. Um, I believe that once you inject, pull, push the plunger down, there's no turning back. But if you smoke it, you may be coming close to ODing, and someone around you can help you, right? Um, and also, we're doing a program where we're going to give people kits to test the drugs out, and they give us back the samples, and we're going to mail them to the lab, and they're going to give the people anonymous reports what's in your drugs. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, fentanyl is kind of. It's become the major issue um, for uh, our movement. And uh, I feel a little bit outside of it because I'm a speed user. But um, and I, and I don't, I, I, I want to see these kids in action because there's a myth out here that there's a lot of fentanyl on speed. I don't think there is. Oh, man, I, I couldn't say for sure because there's just so many variables. But I hear all kinds of rumors about cocaine and meth being contaminated with fentanyl. Um, it could be a lot of false, false positives, you know, just contamination in samples. Fentanyl is so potent yeah. that it can um, right. it can show up even if there's a really small amount. You know, it's hard to say what any – and, and a lot of people uh, do use both. They use fentanyl and speed or, or meth or whatever, you know. It's, it's like they switch mm-hmm. off or right. they use them together. Um, 
speedballs and goofballs, uh, mixing cocaine and opioids or meth and opioids together. That's becoming a lot more popular. Um, yeah. And I think it's also card kind of has to do with the fact that contaminants like xylazine are, uh, are showing up in, in fentanyl. So like people are becoming really, really sleepy and knocked out on some of this, like they call it trank dope. Um, and so then something like meth or cocaine will pick you up. But that creates a lot more risk too for your heart. I mean, right. and so it's it's just kind of, I think this is a good argument for safe supply. Like, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, and for legalization or decriminalization, because um, there's going to be people who um, are afraid to go anyplace like that because maybe they have a felony warrant for drugs or something. And you could, at Drug Union, we have problems with people afraid to go to meetings. They're afraid to be identified. Yeah. Like we yeah. said, no, people don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, it's just paranoia. But um, occasionally TV cameras will come and, and film what we're doing. And we warn people ahead of time, cameras will be here next, year, next week for the meeting. Don't come, you don't be on TV. We can't promise you that they won't put your face on TV. But um, I think, you know, I, I don't want to blow my horn, but I like to think that the work that we did in, in, um, with the Drug Users Union helped SF got to where it is now. So we stood up for ourselves and we went, I went to the meetings. I went to the Human Rights Commission meetings. I went to all those boring meetings um, and met with community groups. And, you know, we did a lot of good groundwork um, to get people prepared. Um, a nonprofit came to me uh, two years back and said, hey, we, we, you guys came to us to talk about drug users' rights. We didn't get it. But the war on drugs is something that people can, lefties can jump on and have solidarity with us on. So they say that now that they're all for us and everything, mostly because of mass incarceration, not because they love drug users, but they see that it's a, it's a you know, racist you know, system. So um, people come at it at all different angles. And I just say, just support me. I don't care what, you know, what your major issue is with incarceration or uh, health or democracy. I think it's all good. You know, I think we have an effect. I really do. Small, but you know, several level USU is also working on that stuff too. We're not a big group, but there are a lot of people who get involved in um, SAMHSA funding. We decide to get on, on the committees that decide who gets funded. That's smart. That's smart. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, we're having some influence. I can see that already. So, you know, um, we're infiltrating and <laughs> uh, going where drug users are afraid to go. Because some of us have over 10 years of experience talking about it and being ashamed of it. Yeah. Why not? So these committees, and we, you know, we know our stuff, and we've had some, uh, some good effects. So less police academies uh, getting funded for yes. <laughs> Um I think that's such a good, um, I don't want to say advertisement, but it's a good explanation of why drug user unions are so important. You know, and, and I understand that it's sort of scary for a lot of people um, to say, "I'm a drug user. I deserve respect." stop fucking stigmatizing me just because I use drugs um, because it's illegal. And, and it feels like you're drawing a target on your back, especially in places like Texas or, you know, Alabama or something like that, where it's a little bit more, uh, more surveillance about that kind of thing. But the people that do it, you know, like they're going to be the ones that help us get to the next stage where, where people are actually respected regardless of their drug use. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to go back to something you were saying earlier about how um, California is perceived as this like liberal oasis 
but that's really only true in Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, and then some of the sort of surrounding cities. And that's, that has definitely been my experience. Like it is such a conservative state yeah. in certain areas, but in the major cities, it's like, it just is so overwhelmingly uh, leftist that, but it, California is not as progressive as people think. And right. Um, I'd like to see that change. Right. Yeah, I know. And some of it is our own success because I've heard people who work in smaller cities complain that all the money for uh, harm reduction and HIV prevention goes to San Francisco and LA. Right. <laughs> and so part of me goes, well, that's a, that's a problem that we wish we had 20 years ago, you know. But still, we still have to work on, on those um, fine points because it's, it's, it can't create resentment. Absolutely. Toward big cities from the smaller places that don't get the funding and they're struggling. And people, people in cities don't even realize it's happening. I, I hadn't even realized it was happening either. Because Shallow uh, moved to Sacramento, said what happened down there. He said, we can't get the money because SF just sucks all the money up. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I'm going to start telling people in SF that we need to advocate for people outside the city because, um, you know, uh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's just not fair. That's not just with drugs and harm reduction. It's also uh, other areas. Like I was doing this reporting on long COVID in California, and they have all these clinics for long COVID, but they're all in the major cities. And I live in San Bernardino County. It's the largest county in the U.S., um, but it's a red county, you know. Right. Um, and they <laughs> have been talking about seceding from California. I don't fucking know where we would go. I guess Nevada or Arizona would just absorb us, but there's no, there's not a lot of uh, resources in this County. It's mostly just desert, not a lot of agriculture or anything. So, but they're complaining about exactly what you're talking about, which is that all the money is going to these major cities and, and San Bernardino isn't getting enough. So some people are saying like, they're just proposing secession as a way to um, get attention and be like, Hey, you need to give us more more cash, which is true. Um, and you're totally right. People need to advocate for drug user rights outside of their own communities because we can get locked in sort of these little little bubbles that are like... Yeah. Well, I know that uh, I've been really privileged to have worked um, with or or as an employee the AIDS Foundation, um, started my organization, um, did a lot of work with Glide, um, work with the Human Rights Commission. Um, and uh, the thing about liberals is, you know, you walk in and you say, I'm a drug user, only part of this Human Rights Commission thing. No one's going to say no. <laughs> I mean, I like you being there. But it's taboo to really be against progressive ideas unless you know they're really bad. Um, we did a crack pipe program. The, the initial press was um, intense. And so... Um, the mayor was really upset about it. He, he, wanted, he, wanted, he didn't want SF to get his reputation. It was a national story for a minute that we have all these, you know, give up free crack pipes. He said, I want everyone to know that the city's not doing that. It's some other group <laughs> doing this. And, um, and, and the Department of Public Health wanted to meet with me to see whether we could stop it or something or, or work with them, um, but not get his media attention. And, uh, but she said some things at the meeting that really rubbed me the wrong way. Like she said, like, um, yeah, we, we could use this as a way to get to the black community. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. 
People who smoke crack in their own black, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's really racist stereotype. Because my own experience with we did for two, three, about two, two and a half years, um, the major people who came to get pipes were almost equally black men and white men. Um, for, for various other reasons, women, we can have a whole program about this, people you already had, but the sexual politics of, of drug use with men controlling women, you know, how they get the drugs and, you know, stuff like that, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Made our number skewed. Because I know people would get the pipes and they go and share with other people. But the women would never go up and get them. So, you know, we tried to have more women outreach and things like that. But that's a whole deep culture. <laughs> that I'm not heterosexual, so I, I, I couldn't really say much about it. I just, observing it seemed like uh, yeah. kind of a sad situation. But that's the sex in our society. Not so much drug users are bad. It's just that. Yeah, sexism, sexism in different ways. Research does some really good work in narco-feminism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really want to ask you if you remember in the '90s um, when medical cannabis started getting uh, a foothold in California, because um, yeah, that was that was because of gay people. That was because uh, cannabis can help with um, some of the symptoms of AIDS, um, and right. California was like. Well, if it's helping helping people dying of AIDS uh, or suffering with AIDS, not everybody died. Um, you know, we'll give it to them. Right. You know, and, and we wouldn't have medical marijuana in California, the first state. Technically, the second Arizona was before California, but then Arizona repealed the law. Um, but California was the first law to stick for medical marijuana. Right. Um, yeah. And we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have the recreational market today, if it wasn't for gay people standing up and saying, this is medicine. Right. Exactly. And cancer cancer patients too. Um, In the eighties in New York city, I knew somebody who was cooking um, marijuana cookies for cancer people. And he got so successful that he started selling to other people who were in the know. Um, Go get those cookies. He was strong as hell. You know, they were made for cancer patients. And, uh, I kept telling people, don't eat the whole thing. <laughs> just, eat, just nibble at it. And sure enough, oh, these taste so good, I'm going to do it. And then I was like, oh, well, I thought, oh. But yeah, I've had two overdoses on marijuana since it became legal, though. Um, at parties where people didn't tell me there was marijuana in the food. And, uh, you know, both times they go to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Because um, I think it's less now. This is the first year it was legal. Oh man, I got home. I couldn't even go up the stairs to my house. I just like laid down. Oh, oh I can't move. The marijuana overdose is real. It's not deadly, but um, be careful, kids. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not. There's no drug your grandfather smoked in the sixties. It's much more powerful because of commercialization. Yeah, you want to get the most buck for your greenhouse or your acres, and so. Um, they make into a really high potent flour, and then they make high potent cookies, whatever. I yeah, marijuana is funny. Another thing about the drug I had no problem with in the last few years with marijuana because it's so I'm used to the old marijuana, right? So I'm vaping on a marijuana pipe in front of my building, and next thing I uh, passed out and didn't wake up when I hit the ground. <laughs> So, you know, uh, it's really, really uh, interesting. But see, in old days, marijuana was a communal thing. So you had to join in to share with other people. You know, it was kind of hard to get because 
penalties. That's gone. You know, people, I don't want to share my vape pen with you. You know, you're on marijuana. <laughs> well, yeah, especially with COVID now. I mean, I kind of understand that. But... Yeah, this, this pre, I'm talking about pre-COVID. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to me, marijuana, I, I don't, I, I, I was thinking about it the other day. What's wrong with me? Marijuana's legal. Why don't I buy more of it? And it's because it's not, it's maybe it's my age, but um, I like saying that's what I can enjoy. You can't do that these days. Just smoke the whole, I don't know about you, but if I smoke the whole joint, I'm passed out. Yeah, yeah. I know that I have a high tolerance for cannabis, so I don't have that problem, but a lot of people do. And I think it's fucked up that, like, right. it's just about profit. And so, and they make these products as high THC as possible. Um, you really do have to, like, I really do value that some of the companies that do the mids, you know, like, or the more balanced strains that have more CBD or CBN in it. And you can grow, you grow your own too. Yeah. Well, I can't because I keep fucking it up. I, I, I'm a terrible gardener. <laughs> Does the electricity come with your building or you have to pay it separate? I have to pay it separate. Okay. So you can, the indoor greenhouse is very really expensive. Yeah. I've tried multiple times and it, the plants just keep dying. Um, but anyway. Grab green touch, eh? <laughs> One of these days I'll get it right. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't grow our own food, but we have to grow our own marijuana. Right. Um, well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I'm starting an offshoot from USU. I think it's, it's maybe be the future of USU. Um, it's, I'm, my website is sfusu.org, and uh, it's a really good website. It needs to be updated a little bit. Um, but uh, uh, I had some setbacks, you know, uh, physically because of my knees. So uh, it's taken me a while to really get out there and do the outreach I used to do. But online is a good way to to do stuff. And uh, I was doing also a, uh, a webinar on stimulants that ran into some problems, internal problems. But we should be back um, any month now get some more funding. Um, so I've been doing stuff online a lot. So sfusu.org. And um, what else can you do? Um, yeah, that's the main thing, um, I would say, for me. You send me an email at isaac at sfusu.org or check out our website, same um, not Isaac, but the SF, you know, USU, dot, SF, org. Okay. So there's two ways to reach me. We'll have links to that in the show notes and everything. Isaac, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you and hearing some of these stories. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great show. I went from crying to being happy at the end. So I think we took people there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, man. It's so good to talk to you. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. An independent production by Narcomedia. Co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. 
And now patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.